anybody familiar with Paul Harvey? I know I'm, I'm dating myself with some of you all, right? Some of you are going, nope, don't know him. Does he play baseball or something? No. Um, Paul Harvey was a, a, a radio journalist, and he had a little program called The Rest of the Story. And if you haven't ever heard Paul Harvey and anything from The Rest of the Story, you need to look it up. I'm sure there's audio archives of it and stuff online. Um, and what he would say was, you've heard this and you know this, but are you familiar with how this came about? Or are you familiar with the ultimate outcome of this story? Do you know the rest of the story? So I don't have a, I was going to share one with you this morning. I don't have one just time-wise. We need to get busy uh, as far as our message goes. But I want you to think about as we get into today's passage, okay? We've come a long way with Esther. We're in chapter 8 this morning. And we've got a lot of background, and I think that today we're going to see a whole lot of the rest of the story. And what I want to ask you is, I want us to look back on where they've been, look at where they are today, and then I want us to reach forward past their events into the future for them, which is the past for us, and even reach into the present for us and the future for us, and why this story matters, why this historical account of Esther and Mordecai and Ahasuerus and Haman and all these guys. Why does it matter? What is the rest of the story? Because today we're going to see something pretty dramatic, even though it may not look overly dramatic as it happens. So what we're going to do is to continue our trend, which is to look back at where we finished last week in our public reading of the Scripture to, to get our our footing there again, and then we'll work through today's passage, which is chapter 8. If you have a Bible and want to turn there, we'll be working through Esther chapter 8 today. So, if you would, stand. We're going to read Esther 7, 7 through 10, which is where we finished last week. We'll recap this just briefly, and then we'll get into Esther chapter 8. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Let's pray. Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. I pray that as we come into the presence of the King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that we would receive your very words. This is not a cute story that the Jews made up. This is a historical account that shows us your glory. I pray that by the power of your Spirit, God, we would see clearly be convicted of our sins, drawn closer to you, and sent out into the world to shine like lights in a darkened place. Help us by the power of your Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, 
we, we saw, as we just read, that uh, as our passage ended last week, Haman, who was the enemy of the Jews, who had hatched this plot to have the Jews destroyed because Mordecai the Jew wouldn't bow to him, we saw him getting hooded in the worst possible way. Anybody ever been through a hooding ceremony? <laughs> Haman went through one and it was bad, y'all. He was being led away to be impaled on the 75-foot high pole that he had constructed to have Mordecai killed on. And then it says that after that happened, the king's wrath was spent. The king was mad. Some guy was planning on taking his queen from him, and then he walks back in from the garden, and he's falling on the couch where his queen was, and he says, he's even assaulting the queen in my presence. What's he thinking? And dude pipes up and says, hey, there's a 75-foot hole, five-foot pole over in his yard if you want to hang him on that. King says, good idea, let's do it, it's done. And the king's wrath is abated. Now we start into chapter 8. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 2 first. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So we saw that the king's wrath was spent, and it surely does seem so, because now he's giving out gifts, right? He's giving stuff away. Good old King Headache, right? Remember him? First thing he does is give Haman stuff away. Because the way that worked is in Persian law, any enemy of the state who was killed for their crime had their property become the property of the state. So the king took possession of Haman's estate after he died. So when it says that the king gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, it doesn't just mean that she got the house that he and his family lived in. It means that she got all that was his. Land, possessions... Uh, slaves, servants, whatever, you name it, if it was Haman's, it was now Esther's to do with as she pleased. Again, watch the reversals here. and that's, that's, We're right in the middle of all this reversal of all the what was bad is now good and what was somebody else's is now somebody else's. <laughs> Excuse me. So he gave, it, he gave Queen Esther the house of Haman and it was hers to do with as she pleased. So... It's Xerxes' way of saying, your enemy tried to take you and your people's lives, so now take all his stuff since he's gone. So in this crazy turnaround, Esther is now master of Haman's whole house. And then we see in our passage that we just read, for the first time, Mordecai in the presence of the king. Mordecai and the king face to face. Remember, He had the parade that Haman led him on, but he didn't interact with the king there. So now we see them face to face for the first time. Chapter 8. Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. Now imagine that conversation snippet. Okay, Thanks for all of Haman's stuff. I appreciate that. Now I want you to meet my dad. Now usually, by the way, fellas, it's better to meet the dad before the wedding, just so you know. This is not really a good setup here. This this is uh, descriptive, not prescriptive, right? But just imagine that conversation. Thanks for all this stuff. I appreciate it. You saved our lives. Now I want you to meet Mordecai. You know him. You prayed him through the town the other day. Well, he's my adoptive dad slash cousin. He's the guy that saved your life. You know him. He's Mordecai. 
Xerxes, Mordecai. Mordecai, Xerxes. And I'm just trying to wrap my head around what the king must have been thinking. We know this guy is not a nice person. He's not a godly man. He doesn't worship the God of the Jews. He doesn't care about much at all. But I just wonder if he's connecting the dots here to see how all of this was working out according to a grand design. I wonder if he saw the rest of the story is what I'm asking. Because he had to see the irony and the perfect timing in all of this. He had to be thinking back to the day before when he couldn't sleep. And, oh, Mordecai, yeah, I heard his name last night when they were, oh, yeah, that's the guy we prayed and he's your dad. Hmm, funny how that worked out. Haman wanted to kill him. He built a gallows. We hung Haman on that gallows that was for Mordecai. Mordecai's your dad. You guys are safe now. Huh. He just had to be connecting dots and seeing perfect timing. I also wonder if he was surprised that Mordecai and Esther were connected in some way or if he had suspected it all along. Because it's not like he, he doesn't look surprised here, but we don't know. We don't know. Either way, now the king and Mordecai have all their cards on the table. No more secrets, right? And how does that go? Well, if you're Mordecai, it goes pretty well, right? Because what's he get? The king took off his signet ring, which was one of the primary symbols of his power and authority, and he gave it to Mordecai. Now the same ring that had sealed the edict to destroy the Jews, which was on Haman's hand just a few minutes ago, was now given to Mordecai. Again, see the dramatic change, instantaneous. Ring taken off of Haman's hand, he stuck on a pole, ring put on Mordecai's hand. A lot going on here. whole lot going on here. Again, a drastic, powerful change of circumstances. Now think of the events of the last week of these people's lives. Now here we go. You ready for this? We're going to look back over the last week of these people's lives. Here we go. The king was complicit, complicit in an arrangement to kill the Jews... Mordecai is grieving and mourning in sackcloth and ashes. Esther is called upon to stand in the gap for her people. She's scared nearly to death of dying. The Jews fast three days, three nights, not eating or drinking. Esther trembles towards the king's court. She is invited in. She is accepted. Then she takes control of her plans to save her people. She invites the king and Haman to a feast. Haman's on cloud nine telling his friends and family how awesome he is. He has a 75-foot... Tall gallows built for Mordecai. The king is reminded during his insomnia how some obscure guy in the gate saved his life five years ago. He asks Haman early in the morning how to best honor Mordecai. Haman self-inflatedly thinks he's planning his own parade, has to then parade Mordecai around. His family tells him he's going to fall before Mordecai. He goes to the second feast with Esther and the king. She points him out directly as her enemy. The king fumes. Haman falls on Esther's couch as the king comes back in. The king says, kill him. Esther gets all of Haman's stuff, introduces Mordecai to the king, and the king puts Mordecai in Haman's newly vacated position. Wow. That's quite a week, y'all. Some of y'all have had rough weeks. Some of y'all had good weeks. They had everything compacted into one. It's a whirlwind. And now, here stands Mordecai, just a few days removed from terror, in the place of authority in front of the king. God does crazy things, y'all. And then Esther says Mordecai can have Haman's stuff. She didn't. She's queen, right? She's in the palace. She don't need Haman's stuff. Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. 
So, yay, happy ending, right? All's well that ends well, right? But we're not out of the woods yet if we're the Jews, right? Verses 3 and 4. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. Now, see, we've got this pesky little detail that's still out there, that there's still a law that in the twelfth month the Jews are to be killed. And the king can't just step in and say, you know what, that's a stupid law. Let's, let's be done with stupid laws. He can't do that. The law of the Medes and the Persians cannot be overturned by anybody, not even the king. And that's the way the Medes and the Persians rolled, y'all. That's just, that's just how they did things. Which, is it a good system? Doesn't matter. It's a system that they were a part of. There's no reset button. There's not, oops, sorry, I was not feeling real good the day I made that law. Just a quick note too, it seems that some time has passed between verses 2 and 3. Let me tell you why I say that. Two reasons. First, you see the king extend the scepter again to Esther here. Now they were feasting at Esther's place before. He wouldn't have to extend the scepter to her there. That happens in the throne room. Okay, So some time has passed and they're in the throne room. And so Esther comes and it doesn't say that she hesitates or anything. She, she just comes before the presence of the king and falls down in his presence and he extends the golden scepter to her. He would only have to do that in the throne room. So we've moved at least location, which would mean some time has passed. But I believe it's even been a couple of months between 2 and 3. Let me tell you why. When we get to verse 9, it says that the scribes are called that day in this same vein of thought, which is the month Sivan, which is the third month. Now, when was the edict issued for all the Jews to be destroyed? In the first month. Remember? Because we said they had almost a full year to get ready for this thing. So we've gone from the first month to the third month, somewhere between verses 2 and 3. And that's not real significant, but it's a detail that we need to understand and we need to see <clears throat> that the king didn't extend the golden scepter to her in her own house. It was in his throne room, and it was a couple of months later. So, some time has passed, but things are going well for Esther and Mordecai, who are in places of influence and power. But the law decreeing their destruction and their people's destruction is still irrevocably in place. So do you say irrevocably or irrevocably? I say both, so catch me later. I might say something different. In the twelfth month, they and their people are scheduled for death at the hands of the people of the empire. So, Esther being aware of this and not one to sit upon her laurels or bask in the good of the moment, speaks to the king. I mean, she just goes in. It doesn't say there's preparation. She just goes in. And note how she does it. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. Now she literally, the queen, who had been offered equality with the king, half of his kingdom, she literally humbles herself before him. And this woman of standing and power falls at the king's feet and weeps and pleads with him for her people. Now this girl has changed in eight chapters. It's been about five years, a little over five years when we get to this point in the story. And she has changed. She has been overtly queenish 
in her plan and the execution of it, but now we see her compassion in full bloom too. I don't think anyone would dare to try to come and kill the queen after all this. So she and Mordecai are probably safe, but she is not content with that. She's not only about her own safety, she wants her people to be saved too. So she begs the king for their lives as well. Now keep in mind, nothing is guaranteed with this guy. This is a couple months later. He may not be in such a good mood. He may say, I don't care about your people. You're fine. I'm going to take care of you, Esther. So she's rolling the dice, proverbially, again. He's like, you and your dad are safe, right? I mean, isn't that enough? Have I not done enough? But... What does he do? He holds out the golden scepter, again, which is acceptance, shows that she is welcome to petition him and that he will work with her and listen to her thoughts. So she rose and stood before the king. Now we have them as equals again. King and queen in ruling power to figure out how to proceed. Now, verses 5 and 6. And she said... If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. Verse 6, For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people, or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Now, note again her process here. It's very similar to how she's approached him the other times he's offered to hear her request. But she actually lays it on a little heavier than before here. Remember when he said, what do you want? Up to half my kingdom, you can have it. She said, if it please the king, blah, 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 blah. Well, she says all of that again, but she adds something here. If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes. She adds to her usual spiel of it please the king, and if I found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right to the king, this little addition, and if I am pleasing in his eyes. She hadn't said that before. She's appealing to his sense of rightness and responsibility, but that's not all. She knows this guy too well. She's also appealing to his pleasure in her. This guy is all about pleasure, right? This guy threw a six-month party. And had every beautiful virgin in his kingdom brought to him so he could pick his favorite based on who pleased him the most. And his favorite was Esther. She pleased him the most. So so she says, And if I am pleasing in your eyes to remind him of the pleasure she has brought him. And then she asks him to do what he can't do. She asks him to revoke the law that Haman had written under the king's authority. And again, she doesn't accuse the king, but rather puts the blame squarely on the recently deceased Haman, which he wrote to destroy the Jews and all the provinces of the king. And then she makes it very personal with this, for how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people, or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? I just, it sounds like Scarlett O'Hara to me. You know, just, oh, Rhett. I couldn't bear it. If you're pleased with me, how can I be pleased or how can I be pleasing if I have to bear the weight of seeing my people destroyed? She's surely saying, please help me, but there's a tinge of help me so I can help you thrown in there. Again, she knows what she's doing. But what what can be done? The king cannot contradict his own orders. 
He can't overturn His own law. He may not have written it, but it was written in His name with His authority placed on it. So, now what? Verses 7 and 8. Then King Ahasuerus said to, King, to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay his hands to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Well, we'll say this about this guy, okay? He doesn't do much on his own, right? How many times have we seen him ask for help or ask for input or ask for counsel before he does anything? I mean, we've seen it several times in this book. He knew he couldn't specifically revoke the old law, but he doesn't show any sign that he knows what to do specifically. He doesn't say, hey, I've got an idea. I'm the king. Let's do this. He says, uh, you, Esther, you, Mordecai, write something in my name and use that ring that I gave to Mordecai. He kind of pushes it off on them. He basically throws them a blank check, says, fill it out, and whatever they can come up with, he's fine with. But we can't revoke the old law. But whatever you write can't be revoked either in my name. And he proceeds that with reminding them that he gave Haman's house to Esther and hanged Haman on the gallows, gallows, even though technically he didn't hang Haman, but he had it done. It's his way of saying that he's already shown that he supports them and shown that he wants them to be alive. I just think he doesn't know what to do, so he urges them to write something and put his name on it. Dangerous way to live, by the way. Don't do that. He's saying he'll approve whatever they say. Again, this is eerily like what he said to Haman. But hey, whatever, right? Either way, Esther and Mordecai were given permission and encouragement to do something to save their people. Now, the ball is squarely in their court. So we're going to look at verses 9 and 10 here. uh, uh, Esther 8 9 is your memory work this week, by the way. Here you go. Are you ready? Woo! The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan. There's what I was talking about earlier. On the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script, and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. Verse 10. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud. So let's break this down. This this and this next little section is kind of the the point of the whole chapter. So we mentioned earlier it's the third month, not the same time as the feast that Esther had. We're a couple months up the road from that, and the scribes were called by Mordecai and Esther. And this time, it's Mordecai who's composing the edict and putting the king's stamp on it with the ring that he's got on his own finger. Verses 9 and 10 are giving the specifics of how it was written and that it was to be sent to every province in the kingdom just like Haman's edict in chapter 3. It also echoes the way that the edict will be distributed through the very efficient Persian postal service on the fastest, most reliable network. Oh, no, that's Verizon. On the fastest, most reliable horses in the world. Sorry, Dave. Sorry. No offense, okay? It's like less than 1%, right? (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, they're using the technology that they have. 
They're using the authority that they have, and they're getting this thing done. Okay? They're going to... And if you, for those of you that haven't been here, this Persian postal service was something else. And that's actually what we in America based our postal service on. Their slogan was, neither rain nor sleet nor hail, whatever that is. That was their slogan. And we adopted it because they were really good at this. They, they had the fastest horses, and they had posts where they would get fresh horses and send these edicts and these things so that this large kingdom from Egypt to India could have everything that the king said in a timely fashion. So they were, they, they were plugged in here. Then verses 11 and 12 tell us what's in the edict. Saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Wow. So the edict says that the Jews are allowed to gather and defend their lives, that the Jews are allowed to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them. And then this, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. Hmm. As if a call for Jews to destroy, kill, and annihilate wasn't enough... The edict says that those who are to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated included children and women. And that they could and should plunder their goods as well. Well, isn't Mordecai just a nice guy? Right? Kill them. Kill them all. And not just the men, but the women and the children. Yeah. So what's going on here? Destroy, kill, and annihilate people, including children and women, and plunder their goods. That's a pretty rough edict, isn't it? You bitter much, Mordecai? Huh? You already saw your enemy hanged on a 75-foot gallows. Are you not satiated here? Do you want to see the blood spilled of women and children? What's going on here? That's a pretty rough edict. Well, before we get too frustrated and think that Mordecai is cruel, let's go back and look at the words of Esther 3 and the edict that Haman produced. And I didn't put that up here. It's verses, just verse 13. Esther 3.13. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Sound familiar? Right. It's the exact same edict, only that it gives the Jews the right to defend themselves should anyone plan on acting on Haman's edict in nine months. So they just used Haman's words and flipped them so that the Jews weren't helpless victims, but rather that they would be prepared defenders of themselves and their properties. So if women or children came and attacked them, women and children died and their goods were plundered. So they just used Haman's edict and said, now, same goes for you all. If anybody attacks you, you can defend yourself. Which means that before they could not have. This decree just leveled the playing field. So it's not really that mean. Right? So verses 13 and 14. 
A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. Ooh, there's a mean word, vengeance. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. So these verses just reiterate everything and show that the edict was issued in every province, displayed for all to see, and the Jews were to be ready in nine months to take vengeance on their enemies. And the decree did go out on swift steeds at the king's command. Now, 15 through 17, and we'll be done with this chapter. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now... Some really interesting details here. First, check out Mordecai, right? He leaves the presence of the king after having drafted and issuing this edict in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. Dude is decked out, right? There would be no confusion with anyone in any part of the kingdom that this guy was important. He was a really big deal. He was royalty. And when he left the king's presence and came out of the palace, the city... Now note that. Note that, y'all. The city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. This guy is a rock star. Okay? I want you to get a hold of it. Mordecai! Mordecai! They're chanting, Hey, look, there's Mordecai! Wow, look, it's Mordecai! Oh, it's Mordecai! No one outside of the king himself would have commanded more respect and honor than Mordecai. So now just a couple months before, he's in sackcloth and ashes, thinking he's going to die in a few months. And now they're chanting his name and he's wearing the royal regalia. Wow. It's quite a trip he's been on. And how would you feel if you were Jewish and saw him and read the edict he had just issued? Well, you don't have to wonder. It says they had light and gladness and joy and honor. Now this is in direct contrast with how they had responded to Haman's decree, which was in chapter 4, verse 3. You don't have to go there. Listen. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So now, which is a very God-ish thing to do, instead of mourning, fasting, weeping, and lamenting, there is light, which infers happiness, and gladness and joy and honor. The Jews give a big And they're glad. Not only to see their lives spared, but also to have such a powerful ally in the palace. Actually, two of them. Mordecai will defend their rights. Mordecai will stick up for them, and Mordecai will plead their case in all matters, it would seem. And then verse 17. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear the Jews had fallen on them. Of course there's a feast, right? That's all these people do is eat and drink. Okay. When the edict reached a place, the Jews rejoiced. And of course they feasted. They partied. They had parties. 
Because they're thinking in nine months we're all going to be dead. So now they get word, we're not only going to be dead, we'll get to defend ourselves, and we might get some plunder out of this deal too. Probably thinking that way. And it's not just a feast that they have, they have a holiday. Which infers to me, they took the day off from work, and they celebrated with joy and feasting. There were parties and holidays all over the kingdom as the edict made its way through the provinces. And that's not all. Not just the Jews noticed. The non-Jews took notice too. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So while the Jews were partying and feasting, the non-Jews were taking notice and responding with a newfound respect for the Jewish folk. It says, the fear of the Jews came upon them. And that word for fear here means paralyzing, overwhelming fear. It's not just all or respect, but rather people were afraid of the position and the power of the Jews in the kingdom now. Now think about it. We've got to go way back to Ezra to think about some of the rest of this story. Okay, If you're a non-Jew, you've noticed things happening over the past few years. Okay? The events of Ezra's first six chapters had taken place wherein tens of thousands of Jews had returned to Jerusalem and rebuilt their temple with the king's help and command and your tax dollars were going to that too. And now this same bloodline is second in command in the kingdom after a dramatic turn of events in Susa and the queen is a Jew too. People would surely be afraid to get on these people's bad side. And they're so afraid of them, they want to become like them. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews. Now look, it's one thing to say, hey, I'd like to be a Jew. But like we saw in Ezra, when people were converting there, it's a big deal to become a Jew. If you weren't born one, remember circumcision, y'all? Any male non-Jew who wanted to become Jewish had to be circumcised along with all the males in his household. And it meant a complete life change. You didn't do the things you used to do. You celebrated different holidays. And you lived a different way. You worshipped a different way. You conducted your family life in a different way. So they didn't just say, okay, I'm a Jew now. They had to actually do a lot of things. And they did it because they were scared of these Jews. They were scared of being on their bad side. I don't think that would have been done lightly or frivolously. And here's what I want you to see. God was doing something unique in this time in the Persian Empire. And this fear and these conversions were proof of that. So that's the end of our chapter. And after a message on pride last week, I'm pretty proud of these application points. Let me just tell you, okay? In a good way, right? That was good pride, right? Pride and job well done. And let me, let me, the, the three application points are three T's. We three T's. No, that's not it. T's. I don't, I I don't know that I've, we've done T's before. The first application point is technology. Okay? The second is theology. And the third one is the one I'm the proudest of. It's teleology. Now we'll talk about what that means when we get there, okay? So... Don't get stuck on that. Technology, theology, teleology. It's a real word. I didn't make it up. Okay, I, seriously. I dare you to Google it right now. No, don't do it. Listen, y'all need to be listening to me. Three application points. Technology is first. When I look at what happened with Esther and Mordecai, 
they used the halls of power. They used the technology at hand for the benefit of helpless people. And we should do the same thing. Look what they did. Again, she's the queen. He's now second in command. That's entering the halls of power. They harnessed the technology, the cutting edge technology of the time, and they saved thousands, if not millions of lives. Anybody heard of these folks that take the vans around to abortion clinics with sonogram machines in them? Anybody heard of that? They've got this mobile van set up and it's got, they do ultrasounds. And what they do, as people are walking into the abortion clinic, they say, hey, would you like to see your baby? And some people come in and they say, yes, they do a sonogram and they see feet and hands. Sometimes a little baby sucking its thumb. And I don't know the number, I wish I did. It seemed like to me it was like 80 plus percent of people who see their baby don't walk into that abortion clinic. Praise the Lord. Amen. That's technology. And that's technology used in such a way that it's saving innocent lives. Now listen, that's not all of our calling. Now we can support those people for sure. Look it up. I don't know what their name is. There's probably different groups. There are, I believe, some really good godly people in the halls of power today. And there always have been. And I believe there always will be. And we should aspire to such things. Young folks, I would love to see you in the halls of power. I would love to see you drafting legislation. I would love to see you enacting laws. My time's probably passed. You know, maybe I'm too old for that. But, but we should strive as Christians to impact the culture in these ways. We are not to be Luddites. Anybody know what a Luddite is? L-U-D-D-I-T-E. Luddite. Let me give you a little story that explain who Luddites are. A Luddite is someone who is incompetent when using new technology. Or they also use it kind of as a slang word for people who are afraid of technology. Let me give you background. The word Luddite has an interesting origin in pop culture of the early 1800s. Legend has it that a young man named Ned Ludd, what a great name, Ned Ludd. What's your name, boy? Ned Ludd. <laughs> Legend has it that Ned Ludd broke an expensive knitting machine in Nottingham, England. Because Ned was considered to be feeble-minded by his boss, he wasn't held financially responsible for the broken equipment. Afterwards, when factory equipment broke, the damage was always blamed on Ned Ludd. Ned did it. (laughs) Ned did it. During the Industrial Revolution, when factory workers organized to express their dissatisfaction with work conditions, the legend of Ned Ludd was politicized. One well-known method of protest was for workers to dress up in disguise and visit a factory owner late at night. The workers, claiming they had been sent by General Ned Ludd, demanding changes in the workplace. The invocation of Ned Ludd's name made it clear to the factory owner that if the demands weren't met, the owner's expensive machinery would be destroyed. The Luddites enjoyed a kind of Robin Hood reputation and the movement was generally supported by the public until a protest at a Lancashire mill went terribly wrong and several people were killed. Now listen, we are not to be backward, technology-fearing Luddites who protest the culture around us by tearing stuff up or by saying, I don't mess with that stuff. That's of the devil. 
Because you know what it does? It makes us sound stupid. Seriously. We are not those people. We are the leaders in culture. We are the users of technology for what purpose? To defend the innocent, to defend the unborn, to help the widow and the orphan, and to keep ourselves unstained from the world. We don't hide behind our Appalachian roots and say we don't want none of that technology stuff. We embrace the technology. We master the technology. We manufacture the technology. And we use it for the glory of God. Some people would say, well, Jesus said we're not supposed to be of this world. Truth. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, Jesus says to the Father, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. No, we're not supposed to be of the world, but we are sent into the world to show people who the Father is. Let me ask you a question. What do you think the Apostle Paul would have done with the internet? Holy cow! We saw at the end of Romans that he had affected the area from Jerusalem up to Illyricum, which is modern day Turkey. I'm sorry, I'm just past Turkey into like the Bulgaria, like yeah, Greece above Greece to the west of Greece. He had infected that area so much on foot using papyrus. And scribes, what would he have done with the internet? Wow. And we sit and say, well, I don't know, I don't know if I could really reach anybody or not. You have the entire world at your fingertips. Well, we can't find time to get together to meet. Use one of these devices or something. Use your phone. We are without excuse. We should be the ones fighting to make a difference through technology, through the use of the halls of power. Another group that I see that's doing this very well is the International Justice Mission. I don't know if you're familiar with their work. If if you're not, familiarize yourself with their work. Because what they're doing, they are using people in places of power, they're using technology, and they are defending the innocent and setting slaves free all over the world. That's what it looks like. That's what Esther and Mordecai did. And that's what we are supposed to do. We are supposed to use the technology that we have to help the innocent and the poor and to inflate and glorify the name of God in our world. And we do have access to the whole world. So that's technology. Theology. Now this one is the toughest one. We've talked all through this book about the providence of God. We've talked about the sovereignty of God. But let me ask you a question. Is this providential, sovereign God okay with this women and children stuff? The destroy and kill and annihilate stuff. It's in the Bible. And Mordecai's not chided here. Again, he used Haman's words. Yes, we understand that. But go back to all this Old Testament stuff. If you'll remember... Haman the Agagite was only around because one man, one of God's men, wasn't faithful to kill all the men, women, and children. God sent them in to destroy them. He sent Saul and the Israelites in to destroy the Amalekites because of the sins that the Amalekites had sinned against the people of God all those years ago. 
Saul wasn't faithful, so that bloodline continued, and all of a sudden we've got a Haman the Agagite who wants to destroy all the Jews. But God said very clearly that he was, Saul and his people, his God's people, were to go in and to destroy the Amalekites, not to leave a man, woman, child, donkey, sheep alive. Our God? Yes. Yes. Our God. Is that not genocide? Yes. And God commanded it? Yes. Really? And let me just say, the unbelieving world is quick to point this out. Saying that a good God would never condone the killing of innocent people. Especially people groups. Men, women, children, the old, the young. And if you look at the conquest of the promised land... God told Joshua directly, you all go and you don't leave any alive. Because if you leave them alive, they're going to be a thorn in your side. And they're going to lead you away from me. Go and wipe them out, were the very words of God. Is that okay? John Piper addresses this with one answer. The Bible says thou shalt not murder... Yet God says to Joshua, Go in and clean house and don't leave anything breathing. Don't leave a donkey, child, woman, old man or old woman breathing. Wipe out Jericho. Piper says this, My answer to that is that there is a point in history, a season in history, where God is the immediate king of a people, Israel, different than the way He is the king over the church, which is from all the peoples of Israel and does which is from all the peoples of Israel and does not have a political ethnic dimension to it. While Joshua, with Joshua there was a political ethnic dimension. God was the immediate king and He uses this people, listen, as His instrument to accomplish His judgment in the world at that time. And God, it says, let the sins of the Amorites accumulate for 400 years so that they would be full. Genesis fifteen sixteen. if you want to write that down and then sends His own people in as instruments of His judgment. Well, that ain't fair, is it not? Now let me ask you this. Do we see this today? No, we do not. But we do see God taking lives every day. Every day. God is in direct control of every life in the world. Psalm 139.16 Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Every day of every life that's ever been lived has been written down. And it's under the sovereign providential rule of God. Is that fair? Let me say this. My life, your life, the life of every person who was ever alive, they are all held in God's hand in His direct rule. And every life minus one has transgressed His will and deserves death, hell, and the grave. Who is this God? Do we know Him? And a better question may be, who are we to accuse Him? Innocent people, right? Y'all have heard this before, but it has to be said again. 
Romans 1, 18-32, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, 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 and that's all of us, are without excuse. For although they knew God... They did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. That's the motto of our generation, by the way. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things and cars and sports players and... Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, since they did those things, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. We are not innocent. I am not innocent. Nobody is innocent. The men, the women, the children, the old, the young, they're not innocent. You say, well, that doesn't sit well with me. I understand that. I, I, I do. I truly understand that. This is some of the hardest stuff in Scripture that we'll ever deal with. Without a doubt. But I would say this with none of us being innocent, with all of us having sinned, we are all God's enemies. We sang it this morning. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. God is creator. God is the potter. And we are the clay. He has sovereign right to take whatever life He has created. And in doing so, He is holy. He is just, and He is not under your judgment. And the words of Abraham ring through my heart and mind here. Genesis 18.25 Far be it from you, God, to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. And here you go. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Nobody will stand before God on the final day and say, you're not being fair. They'll weep and gnash their teeth as they're cast into eternal fire, but they will not say, oh, you're wrong. You're not fair. They're going to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory, even though they hate that glory. And listen, you would go there too if it were not for the grace of God. Grace is not anything that you deserve. 
Behold our God seated on the throne. He is the sovereign, ruling, righteous, holy judge of all the earth, including me and you and every individual life that has ever been lived. Be very, very careful before you accuse him of injustice. And I would say this too, read the whole book and get to know this God before you start accusing him. Technology, theology, teleology. That's T E L E O L O G Y. Teleology. That is the study of ends, E N D S, or final causes. Teleology is the rest of the story. What is the end purpose of an acorn? To become an oak tree. Right? Teleology explores that. So as we've looked over the course of Ezra 1 through 6, Esther 1 through 8, we've seen God weaving together this grand story. What's the point of it all? So that the Jews would be saved? No, that's not the end result. The end result is that there would come forth a seed from these Jewish people who would save God's people from their sins. The end of all things is not just that He would save people, but that He would bring many sons to glory so that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the point of this story today. That's the point of Ezra 1-6. through That's the point of Genesis. That's the point of 2 Thessalonians and Revelation. And if we read this story in isolation and say, hey, that's just a nice story, we don't get it, we don't see the rest of the story, and we don't see how it applies to us. But the purpose of today's story, today's historical account, is to show you that God is ever working and God will have His glory. And we see it directly in Esther when we see there are people taking note that the people of God are being aided by their God and they want to know this God. I want to be a Jew because your God is mighty. Your God is doing miraculous stuff. Yes, I'll be circumcised. Yes, I'll circumcise every male in my house. Yes, I'll change my complete lifestyle and live differently because I want to know your God. And my question for us today is, how are you living? Are you living for the rest of the story? Are you living with the end in mind? And the end is the glory of God. So when you have to make an immediate decision, I will do this and I will make this decision and take this path for the glory of God. Will you mess up from time to time? Yes, you will. You'll choose the wrong path. Don says it all the time. I don't always want to do the right thing, but I always want to want to do the right thing. And the right thing is always the glory of God. The Jews wept and fasted and nobody took notice. They celebrated and proclaimed the excellency of their God and people started sitting up and taking notice. Now I'm not saying we should never fast or weep. We should. Thousands upon thousands of unborn children killed every day. We should weep and we should fast over that. 
And we should also, I said this about Resurrection Sunday, we should also celebrate the bigness of an awesome God who's doing awesome things in our midst and in the midst of the world. And we should proclaim that there is deliverance from the wrath of God that is coming. The king is returning, and when he comes, he's bringing recompense with him. And if you don't know the grace of God, you're going to receive the recompense of God. And we as Christians, we as believers, have to live with that end in mind. We have to have our teleology right. We're not just going to be eaten by worms one day. We're going to live eternally proclaiming the excellencies of God, who He is and what He's done. Let's start now. We'll finish with the words of Jesus. You are the light of the world, Christian. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, church, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That is the rest of the story. That's the point of all of this. That's the reason we use technology and we get our theology straight so that He will be glorified in us and through us. Let's pray. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. (laughs) What do we say to these things, God? Yawn. It's almost lunchtime. God, wake us up. Wake us up and make us leaders in our culture, in our society. Wake us up and help us to harness the technology that is at our fingertips so that we might proclaim the truth of who you are, God, and we might do it with the end in mind, the end where one day the sheep and the goats will be separated before the king. Help us to urge men to flee from the wrath to come. Help us to love and to serve and to lay down our lives so that others might have life in you. May we be culture changers. And may we do it for your glory, God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you would stand to receive a benediction. And after the benediction, we'll have Emily and Dawn come up and she'll sign her covenant, which is a joyous occasion. Let's celebrate today. This is, this is a joy. Benediction, now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And all God's people said, Amen. All right, guys, would you all...